Father, as we enter into this passage, any, um, any part of scripture, we recognize that the words that are contained in it are so sacred, so holy, and yet, Father, in our sinful rebellion against you and against your word, we trample on these words every day. And while we may not be burning these words into a pile of heap, but Father, so often through our attitudes and through our lifestyles, through our sinful choices, Lord, we tend to um, just live with a very callous heart. And maybe that arises out of complacency we become so familiar with these things that the word of God no longer penetrates into our conscience. Or maybe it's that our consciences have been so stricken or so um, numbed that we don't um, feel these words striking us. Father, more than my words, I pray that your spirit would speak the truth of this passage. Father, I feel utterly inept and inadequate to declare these truths. So Lord, um, I have studied and prepared and done the best. Father, in my inadequacies, I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would shine. God, I pray that through these words, you would speak life and of hope and of freedom to all of us and may your words bring comfort may your words bring strength and may your words drive us deeper into the heart of Christ we pray these things in Jesus name amen Leon Morris a great um, theologian Bible scholar one of the greatest Bible scholars of the 20th century In my mind um, he died about, uh, I believe, about 10 years ago. He went to be with the Lord. He said this uh, from his commentary on Romans. Becoming a Christian is a decisive step. It is the beginning of faith, and it means the end of sin. The end of sin. The moment that we place our faith in Jesus, our faith is what makes us Christian. So sin is ended. The emphasis falls on the act rather than the continuing state, okay? That, that state of, of, of faith, it's a state. In other words, we have been justified and we have been saved. And I, I threw out a lot of big words last week, right? Justification, sanctification, glorification, a lot of big theological concepts. And, and hopefully I did, I did um, the best I could in terms of, of diagramming, showing you that diagram, how salvation is a holistic experience of justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification is that positional act where God sets us apart to receive our salvation, to be declared righteous by Jesus. Okay, and have that righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And what that means is it's not my righteousness. I am not righteous by myself. I am not righteous in and of myself. So my nature doesn't change. What does change is my position because Jesus has declared me righteous. His righteousness is imputed to me. So God no longer accepts my unrighteousness. God accepts Christ's righteousness on my behalf. That's justification. Sanctification is the positional act of God setting apart his people for himself. And I talked about, you know, the, 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 uh, the wedding metaphor or the marriage metaphor, the love. You know, you fall in love with that person and you're set apart for that person. Um, but there's an also an ongoing aspect of sanctification, the process by which we lay aside our sins, leave behind our life of sin, and we address sin in our lives on a daily basis. And how we do that is through confession, acknowledging these sins, confessing the sin in our lives that we practice on a daily basis, and then allowing the Holy Spirit to cleanse us of these sins, transform us on a daily basis as we as we engage God's word, 
and as the Holy Spirit engages us into a living relationship with Christ. Okay? And then glorification is ultimately when sanctification is finished, we enter into the presence of God, we are, we are glorified. In other words, morally and ethically, we become perfect, sinless. I don't like that word perfect because perfection has that um, connotation of something that, um, that doesn't necessarily, we are not by nature perfect, but we are sinless. Okay. So when, we, when the Bible uses the word perfect in terms of, of who we are, oftentimes that word perfection is translated um, as complete, complete. And what that means is the Holy Spirit works in our lives every day, every moment, in every way to make us more like Christ. And so there's that process of becoming Christ-like, and that's what sanctification comes down to. It's a process of being Christ-like, and when we are glorified, sanctification is complete. We are holy like him, morally and ethically. Now, that's a difference than saying there are heresies that go around all the time in the church that say we are like him in nature. No, we're not like him in nature. We are like him morally and ethically. So we will never be Jesus. There are a lot of misconceptions that people have about being a Christian and about the afterlife. Um, but anyway, uh, Morris, Leon Morris, continues on, okay? It is, uh, the emphasis falls on the act rather than the uh, continuing state. There is, of course, a sense in which Christians die to sin every day. They constantly commit themselves to God and become dead to all evils. Get that? Become dead. So there's a process of becoming, of becoming, and of becoming. He is referring to the death to sin that marks the beginning of the characteristic Christian life. The characteristic Christian life. Um, it is the end of the reign of sin and the beginning of the reign of grace. And that's what it means. Sanctification is the reign of grace. He continues, it is the death of Christ that makes anyone a Christian, and apart from that death, baptism is meaningless. This is a strong affirmation of the centrality of the cross. Christ's death alone is the ground of our justification, and when we make that our own by faith, we are united with Christ, united with him in his death, united with him in his burial, united with him in his rising again, united with him in life. That's the Christian life, is our unity with Christ. So, um, as far as this passage is concerned, of chapter 6, there's, there's some technicalities that I need to teach you. When, uh, because for so many people, they're kind of overwhelmed when they come to the Bible and they don't understand how to interpret the Bible, so they don't understand how to gain the correct meaning of the scriptures. Um, and I need to teach you this first, first of all, a concept a concept is called antinomianism, okay? Antinomianism. Antinomianism is a fancy Greek word. It means against law. Or practically speaking, it, it means lawlessness. And what it's talking about is moral and ethical lawlessness. As Christians, when we live a life of drunkenness, that's antinomianism. When we live a life of sexual indulgence, sexual immorality, that's antinomianism. When we allow filth, filthy words and filthy language and, and filthy attitudes to come out of our hearts, that's antinomianism. The idea behind antinomianism is this. I'm a Christian. I know that I'm going to go to heaven because I've trusted my life to Jesus and I've given myself over to him. Therefore, I can do everything that the world does. I can live my life in a complete sinful indulgence. Get drunk with my unbelieving friends. Right? Why not? After all, I know I'm going to heaven. What does it matter what I do in this world, in this life? That's antinomianism. Can I live my life as a Christian by the same sexual liberalities? that the unbelieving world has? 
antinomianism. Okay? So this is the issue that the Apostle Paul is addressing, and he ad addresses this from chapter 6, verse 1, all the way to chapter 7, verse 6. He'll address this topic of antinomianism. And what we're going to see, the reason that it's important for the Apostle Paul to, to teach these passages is because this is a problem for Christian mindset. Right? Do you think the world, unbelievers out there, ever have a problem with sexual immorality? No. They don't have a problem with it. They just do it. They just live their lives and do what they want to do. And nobody's going to tell them what they can't do. Correct? But a Christian is going to have a problem with that. Why? Because a Christian sees his life in light of the holiness, the radiance of Christ, the purity of God. And we interpret our values and we interpret our morals upon that, upon God's own nature and of his character. And because that is the basis upon which we interpret our lives, we cannot continue this life. Okay, another technical term I need to bring out so that you guys will have a basis for interpreting this passage, okay? Write this down. Diatribe. Diatribe. D-I-A-T-R-I-B-E. A diatribe is a, formal, a form of Greek rhetoric. It's a, um, it's a rhetorical uh, construct. The Apostle Paul is one of the greatest philosophers of the New Testament era among the Christians as well as non-Christians, among the Jews as well as the Gentiles. In the entire Roman Empire, the Apostle Paul is one of the greatest philosophical and log logical what, logicians of his time. And so he, he engages this concept called a diatribe. A diatribe uh, is a series of rhetorical questions, oftentimes with a denial and a correction of uh, false beliefs. Okay, so first, in chapter 6, we see a rhetorical question. He says, what then shall we say? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And the NIV, the older version of the NIV, used to say, shall we continue to live in sin? so that grace may abound. What he's doing is, throughout the previous chapters, from chapter 1 all the way to chapter uh, 5, the Apostle Paul has defended this doctrine of justification by faith. I'm saved by faith. I'm justified by Christ, by his finished work, and that, that I am saved by grace through faith. And it's all faith. It's not righteous works on my part, correct? Like Isaiah says, all our righteous acts are what? Filthy rags. So what he's doing is he's taking this rhetorical question to, to, to correct a, a faulty assumption. And the faulty assumption is this. Can I continue to sin? Can I continue to indulge my, myself in a continuous habitual life of sin? Because since I, I was a sinner when Jesus saved me by his grace, that means that if I continue to sin, I can just, what? Receive more grace. Receive more grace. Correct? And then there's the denial. The denial of that faulty notion. In verse 2, he says, by no means. By no means. Skip forward to verse 15, and you'll see that same device being used in verse 15. In fact, you'll see it scattered throughout the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul is a master at employing the diatribe. It's like this. A lawyer enters into a courtroom, you know, and a good defense lawyer, a good defense lawyer is so well prepared, right? Can you imagine a defense lawyer stepping into a, a courtroom not being prepared? to defend his client, that would be terrible. So 
a, a good defense lawyer has everything prepared. And what he does is that he goes up to make his case, and before the prosecution can, e can even lay out his accusations, a good defense lawyer can, say, can, can predict or, or, or kind of, um, uh, a kind of, he has an understanding, a grasp of what the prosecution's argument is going to be. And so he lays down every argument that the prosecution is going to state. And then, right then and there, he says, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And now let me tell you why it's wrong and what the truth is. And by doing that, when the prosecution gets up there and makes case A, case B, case C, case C, you know, and, and the defense lawyer comes up and says, I've already proved to you that this is wrong, and here's the evidence to prove that. My client is innocent. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's making a denial of faulty assumptions. So verses 1, 2, 3 of uh, chapter 6, and also verse 15, what then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And here's the denial, by no means. Not even possible. In fact, this is, uh, in, in the Greek construct, this is a double negative. Ume. Not, no, is what he's saying. And oftentimes, you know, in, in English, when you use a double negative, a double negative cancels itself out, right? And it becomes a, it becomes a positive. But in the Greek, a double negative is used as an emphasis. Words are often repeated for the sake of emphasis. And so when he says, by no means, ume, not, never, what he's saying is, it is not even possible. As a Christian, it is not even possible. The possibility doesn't even exist for us to think like this act like this, live like this. Okay, so, uh, so we have the faulty argument, we have the denial, and then we have the correction. How can we who died to sin live in it any longer? We're dead to sin. How did, how did we die to sin? He's going to make the case that we died when Christ died. When Christ died on the cross, our sin was crucified with him. We were spiritually dead with Christ. When Christ was buried into the grave, we were buried with him. Our sin was buried with Christ. When Jesus Christ rose again from the grave, we were united with him in his resurrection spiritually so that we are raised to a new life. And what accomplishes that? That's the faith that we have in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you're dead to, to sin. That's the amazing truth. And the correction in verse 15 on the second uh, diatribe there, do you not know that, you, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. There are two reasons that the Apostle Paul says that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Okay, first reason is this. In verses 1 through 15, the emphasis is on our union with Christ, our union with Christ. There's something very, very sacred about that union. We don't often understand, I think, because humanly speaking, unity with another person is very rare. We don't often share unity. We are very individual beings. In fact, in our American culture, don't we emphasize individual freedoms so much? Our American values are all about being individuals. You can't take away my freedom of choice. You can't take away my individuality. But biblically speaking, the strongest expression, the strongest expression of holiness comes from unity. Two people, when they get together, you know, one of the things that, 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 that really sets uh, relationships apart is people, two people who meet and, they, and then they're like, oh, we were meant for each other. We hear those kind, that, that kind of language, right? You find commonalities in people. And you get to the per point of where you know someone so well that oftentimes you find that you even think like that person. 
Have you guys ever experienced that? You know, sometimes you want to uh, ask a question and, and before you can ask, before the words leave your mouth, the other person's like, yeah, 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 and they give you the answer. Or, you know, or, you know, you like, and the other person looks at you, yeah, and you don't even have to say the words. There's, a, there's that sense of understanding, that sense of, of uh, there's something very mystical about that. But what's even more important is that there's a mystical union in marriage. The Bible says that when two people are married, they, are, they become one flesh. There's not two people. There's not two people living in the same house. There's not two people sharing one name. But it's two people who become one flesh. And that union is a mystical union that we have through Christ, okay? Now, okay, there's the technical aspect. Now, the reason says, if we have been united with him in his death, verse five, if we have been united with him in his death, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we have already been spiritually, positionally united with Christ. And then he says that there's gonna come a, future when we will be completely united with Christ, right? Um, so it's kind of like, uh, it's, it's hard to describe because in our Western terms, uh, in our Western culture, uh, the engagement is not the same thing as a wedding. There is, in the uh, ancient Near Eastern culture, the engagement itself was just a sacred as the wedding was, the marriage. And so oftentimes, what would happen in the ancient times is uh, uh, a couple might choose to get married or the parents might choose uh, uh, the, the bride or groom, you know, wh whom that they would marry. And the people, the families, two families would, would agree and they would come to an agreement. And then, and then for the time being, uh, the families or the couple would stay apart they would live in separate homes. They would stay apart. Completely different from our, from our Western culture. Today, it's like, you know, people don't even get married anymore, right? They just live together and have children, and they're not even married. I had a, a co-worker, you know, well, not a co a, a lady who works at the store at Albertsons, and, and I was talking to her, and, uh, and she goes, uh, she goes, I was talking to her about, you know, children and all that. And she goes, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, my, my boyfriend wants us to have a baby. But, you know, I, I told him I'm not ready for it. But, you know, I guess if he really wants a baby, then I'll give him a baby. It's like, wow. <laughs> didn't, uh, of course, I, I didn't show any. She's an unbeliever, you know. Unbelievers will think what, what they want to think. I said, you know, I, I think it would mean a whole lot more if, uh, if you guys were married, you know. And, um, <clears throat> and so, you know, a couple months later, comes up and says, oh, hey, guess what? I'm pregnant. Oh, wow. Um, because her boyfriend wanted a baby. And, uh, and they're still not married. And it's been, it's been like a year. But, and they have a beautiful baby boy. And now she's thinking, oh, you know, we might have another baby. And so there is nothing in the mind of an unbeliever that says that, you know, we... We maintain a sacred union, a sacred bond, a sacred a sanctity in a sacred union because our God determines uh, the standards of our behavior, of our moral standards. They have no moral standards. Our union with Christ is, is determined by the fact that Jesus Christ has set us free from sin second aspect of, um, of this passage is found in verses 15 to the end of the chapter where it talks about our union with Christ um, but also our freedom from slavery, our freedom from slavery. Um, and he talks about how the one you present yourself to is the one that you serve. The one you present yourself to is the one you serve. Basically, 
this idea, this metaphor of a slave is, this metaphor of a slave is another way of saying our relationship to sin. Our relationship to sin. If sin tells you, hey, look at that woman. Go commit immorality with her. Yes, master. You do what your master tells you to do. Sin says, you know, sin says, hey, you know what? Take a little bit of money from the cash drawer at your, at your job. Yes, master, you do what sin tells you to do. The choices that we make every day of our lives is a reflection of number one. Do we have that union with Christ? Are we united with Christ? And if we are united with Christ, then is it possible for a person united with Christ to continue that sinful pattern of behavior in such a way that we don't think about the glory of Christ in our lives, the honor of Christ? Because that behavior is either going to honor Christ or it's going to dishonor Christ. How does it dishonor him? It brings a stain to the name that Christ has placed on us. Also, more importantly, Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross and we were united with him in his death and we were united with him in his resurrection, what Jesus did was he freed us from the power of sin. It's really, really important because this idea of sin is also another way of saying that the thing that you're enslaved to is another way of saying that this is your idol. An idol is something that defines us. An idol is something that defines us. I had a um, conversation with a brother from another, um, from my other church that I've been attending. We were at a, um, another, yeah, I was uh, attending, we were in a Bible study, and in the, uh, in the Bible study, one of the, one of the brothers raised up this question, you know, um, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, you have very clear images of idols. Oftentimes, people worship false gods, um, and you see that very clearly. But in, in the New Testament, it's kind of ambiguous what, what idols are. And, um, and he asked the pastor, he says, well, why do you think that is? And then the pastor looked at me, and he goes, well, Bill, what do you think? And I said, and I said this. I said that in the Old Testament, idols are much more specific in the sense that we can handle them, we can see them, you know, they were carved out of gold, wood, metal, stone, whatever, and people gave their veneration to those things. But in the New Testament, idolatry is a lot more generalized. So in the New Testament, we don't have less idols. In the New Testament, we have much more, a lot more idols. In fact, the New Testament talks about sex as idolatry. Sexual immorality is idolatry. New Testament talks about love of money as idolatry. It's not just bowing down to different gods. Greed is idolatry. So these things, idol is an idol in the New Testament is something that defines us. It defines our behavior, it defines our attitudes, it defines our values. These are the things that we are enslaved by. And so, in this, he says that we have been set free from these things. And here's a beautiful metaphor, okay? This, uh, this seems a little bit um, confusing, maybe, to some. You guys all read this passage. Everybody read it, right? Okay. How does Romans chapter 6 define freedom from sin or freedom from slavery? How does it show us? You guys give me an answer. Go ahead and spit it out if you have it. Slavery to what? Righteousness. Absolutely. Isn't that amazing? Jesus sets us free from slavery in order to make us slaves? But wait, why is that? What does that mean? Why, why would Jesus set me free and then, and then enslave me? You know, somebody might say, well, that, that seems unfair. 
I have to enslave myself to Jesus to be really free? And that's what freedom means, is to be enslaved? But no. Freedom is freedom to obey. We have some married couples here, and I think married couples will be able to identify with this idea more than those who are unmarried. But I hope that if you are unmarried, you have seen this pattern of behavior in your own parents. When your wife says, oh, honey, can you go take out the trash, please? What do you say? Why do I have to take out the trash? How come you're always making me take out the trash? Why don't you, you, you got two hands, you got two feet, why don't you take out the trash? Does that happen? Is that love? Honey, I need you to wake up, feed the baby. I'm not going to wake up. You wake up. You're the mommy. It's your job. You take care of it. Isn't that, is that terrible? You know, a man would think, well, you know, all my wife wants me, is, me to be is a slave. She wants me to take out the trash. She wants me to clean the garage. She wants me to, you know, do this and that and all this. But, but, what makes the change? If you love somebody, is it hard to take out the trash? If you love somebody so deeply and so much? Is it hard to serve? Freedom is always an expression of love. Freedom is always an expression of love. Serving, service, servanthood is always an expression of love. So a husband who loves his wife doesn't have a problem with taking out the trash. Right, Steve? Amen. Amen. <laughs> right? And no matter what, what is asked of us, we do it. Why? Because it's not hard. It's a joy to see our wives happy. It's a joy to please the ones we love. It's never a work. And if, you know, pleasing your wife is a work, there's a problem with your heart. That's a heart issue. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 25 to 27. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives. This is a command. This is a command. Steve, you're in the Air Force. Steve, when a commanding officer comes, comes up to you and says, Michener, I need you to take care of this. What do you say? <laughs> uh, you know what? Um, it's, I'm on my break right now, so why don't you come back at a later time, and if, uh, if it's convenient, yeah, maybe I might take care of it. Right? What would that get you? Yeah. Very quick discharge from the military, I'm sure. Or, you know, you wouldn't have a job anymore. But, it says, husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. It would be so hard. Somebody comes up to you and says, love your wife. What? It's an order. Love your wife. What? Why are you telling me to love my wife? I don't want to love my wife. No, he says, love your wives as Christ loves the church, as Christ loves the church, because our standard for love is not me, what I can do, the amount of love that I can give, because you know what? I may be a very immature, selfish, prideful person, 
correct? And my standard and idea of love, my subjectivist interpretation of love may be very shallow and meaningless. But when we look to Christ, and it says Christ, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that's how much you love your wives, husbands. But more than that, he goes on to say that he might sanctify her. What does that mean? That he might make her holy. There's an end goal to love. The more love that we share, the more holy that love becomes. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that, he might, that she might be holy and without blemish. Wow. We are to present our wives in such a way we are to present our wives in such a way that Christ will see our wives, Christ will see the way that we serve our wives. She becomes more holy. She loves Jesus more. Not only that, but she becomes more and more like Christ by the way that we treat her. That's what love does. So when the Bible says, we are no longer slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to righteousness. That idea of slavery is this idea of love being expressed in righteousness, in the way that we treat and love others. But I want to uh, delve a little bit in, in this word, present. Present, because this is such an important word, and this was actually supposed to be the main thrust of my sermon here, was supposed to be on this word. We have negative commands in verse 14, 12 to 14. Uh, he says, do not let sin reign, verse 12. Um, and verse 13, he says, a negative command is given, do not present your members as instrument of righteousness. Your members. Your members, in other places, members are parts of your body. It's also a, another way of saying your whole being. Do not present your body, do not present yourself as instruments of unrighteousness, um, this word present is the word pa paristemi, paristemi. From the prefix para, meaning beside, and stemi, meaning stand or stay. What does this word mean? It means to place beside, to set at the hand, or to present, to proffer. We don't use that word proffer anymore, right? Your, your bosses, um, uh, oftentimes we might think of it in, in terms of our relationship to bosses. We might think of it uh, um, in terms of being in the presence of someone very high and noble, a servant before his king, proffers himself, honors the king by humbling himself. Also means to present or show, to bring near to bring near, and metaphorically to bring into one's fellowship of intimacy. Present yourself. Bring yourself into a fellowship of intimacy. Okay. So we can either present our members to sin, we can become uh, intimate with sin, and we can present ourselves intimately to sin, or we can present ourselves in intimate fellowship with Jesus. And the more that we present ourselves in intimate fellowship with Jesus, the more that we become like him. The more holy we become in practice every day, every, every moment. And then we are given positive commands in verse 13, but present yourselves to God. Present yourselves to God. Present yourselves in holy, intimate fellowship to God. As those brought from death to life, because you know that you've been brought from death to life, death no longer has mastery over us. 
And he says, as also to members to, to God as instruments of righteousness. How does God express righteousness in the world today? How does God express righteousness in the world today? Through his people. As people reflect the image of Jesus in their lives, everything that we do becomes good. Remember we talked about the moral goodness? We live for that moral goodness of God. That's what holiness, that's what sanctification will work in our lives. Okay, I'm, um, I'm out of time, so I'm going to uh, end with a, um, a couple of stories. Well, a story and a poem. This is a story from Paul Harvey. Many of you will not know who Paul Harvey is. I grew up on Paul Harvey. Steve is laughing because he knows. I don't know. Gemma, do you know Paul Harvey? Oh, Steve, you got to introduce her to Paul Harvey if you know Paul Harvey. Okay. So this is a story from Paul Harvey. I'm just going to read it because it's easier to, to read it than to try to explain the story. I might lose something. There was a young man who grew up in the backwoods. And as his years lengthened, he was sent to school. So this is a very small country school and a very small country town, you know, a village maybe. At first, school was fun to him. He enjoyed being around those children his own age and found great excitement on the playground. Little by little, all of this soon was to change. This young kid could not seem to catch on to reading or to writing or to arithmetic. When the teacher would try to get him to read, it seemed that the words were gibberish. When he was asked to write his name, there in the characteristic scrawl of a first grader came the letters Y-M-O-T, Wymot. So it was that Tommy soon became christened Wymot by all of the kids in the class. On the playground, why not throw the ball? Why not catch the ball? Why not hand me the jumping rope? Because that, because that, Weimott was so humiliated by his lack of understanding in the classroom, he reverted to becoming very inattentive in the class. Losing interest in his classwork, he would turn into a disciplinary nightmare. He would be sent to the hall to sit in the chair. In fact, his first two years of school, he spent more time in the chair in the hall than he did at his desk. It became known as Weimott's chair. The teacher, when correcting other children, would send them to the hall to sit in Weimott's chair. This humiliation continued in the mind of this child until he began to feel worthless. There were numerous days that he was ordered to stay in at recess to clean up the cloakroom to sweep the floor and to empty the ashes of the pot-bellied stove. He almost dreaded recess. At the end of his second grade year, the teacher sent home a letter to Weimott's family. It was even addressed not to T Tommy's parents, but to Weimott's parents. The effect of the letter was that Weimott would not be allowed to attend school the following year because he was unteachable. Therefore, Keep him at home. Use him in the fields and in the barn because that is all he is good for. But there was just one problem with the letter. Weimott could not read and neither could his parents. So with the school year beginning, Weimott traipsed back to the little schoolhouse. Out of frustration, his teachers had merely passed him despite his inabilities to learn. The third grade school teacher was an old the third grade school teacher was an old spinster. She dressed in long black dresses with high collar. She wore um, tie-up black shoes that went from the toes to mid-calf. Stern, authoritative, an old maid. But there was one thing that separated her from Weimott's earlier teachers. She had an incredible love of children. On Weimott's first day, when the children were told to write their names on top of their papers, Weimott's heart sank. He labored again with his first grade scrawl, Y-M-O-T. The old spinster was walking around the room as the children were writing, and she noticed this third grader writing backwards. 
she understood that he was dyslexic. So with a gentle smile and a pat on his hand, she told him to stay in at recess. Tears welled up in Weimat's eyes. It couldn't be. It just, it's just the first day of school and he would have to stay in at recess. At recess, he silently waited at his desk. The teacher walked up to his desk and sat down in the one in front of his. She looked deeply into his eyes, into his little eyes, and said, Tommy, you have one of the most brilliant minds of any child that I have ever seen. Tommy was astonished. Here was someone who really cared about him, someone who would call him Tommy. Without that, Tommy's entire educational experience process turned into a new direction, or with that. Tommy's entire educational process turned into a new direction. <clears throat> there were at least a couple of days every week that Tommy would spend during the third grade year inside at recess with his, uh, with his elementary teacher. It was over a process of time that she taught this young man that his, that his disadvantage could work to his advantage. From his fourth grade year all the way through his college years, Tommy made, never made anything but A's and B's. That's told again by Paul Harvey. Our victory over temptation and our sin is not based on our best efforts. It's not based on our willpower. How many of you have tried to win the power over temptation by willpower? How many have tried to put your best effort forward? If I just try hard enough, maybe I can overcome this sin. It is based on the fact that Jesus defeated sin. Jesus defeated the devil and beat him. He faced temptation and he won. This is what it means to be sanctified. Jesus accepted us, not because we were so holy and so righteous, not because we were so good, but Jesus accepted us because of his love, because he loved us. And it's on the basis of that that we are accepted. And if we want to be like him, we must spend time with him. Spending time with Jesus is not a work. Can you imagine Tommy sitting in those, class, in those classes all those years with those teachers who were just so frustrated with him? Had to stay in after recess, had to sit in the hall. All that frustration of being with a teacher. But then here's a teacher who loves him, who cares about him, and who sees the potential of his life. And spending time with her is not a work. Spending time with her is not punishment. Spending time with her is love. And this is God's design. Love. The love of Christ changes everything. It changes our outlook. It changes our attitudes. It changes our behavior. Let's pray. I'm going to go forego the poem because of time. I've already gone over. So. <clears throat> Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, you loved us even before the world was established. Even before the world began to turn. Lord, you had in mind, you had in motion, you set in motion your plan of salvation that through Jesus, you would bring into this world your love through the object of your love, your son, your only son. And through him, we become the objects of your love the world that was fallen, the world that was broken, the world that was captive, the world that was enslaved to sin, to evil. 
Lord, your love frees us. So, Father, I pray that we would leave this place different than we were when we walked in through those doors. Lord, that we would leave with the full assurance that the power of the love of Jesus Christ in my heart, in our hearts, will continue to make us more and more holy. And Father, we pray that as we become more and more like Christ, Lord, that you would sanctify us through and through to bring us closer to glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's all stand for closing song. Christ in me is to live, to die is to gain. Christ in me is to live, to die is to gain. He's my king. He's my king, he's my song, he's my life, he's my joy, he's my strength, he's my song, he's my peace, he's my Lord, Christ in me. Christ in me is to live, to die is to gain. Christ in me is to live, to die is to gain. Please remain standing for the benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 to 24. And all God's people say, Amen.